Hello, friends, and welcome to the Coffee and Beer podcast. I'm your host, Nick Penizzato, here with the co-host, the good doctor, Mr. Mike Broman. And today we have a bit of a unique show here. We don't have a guest. It'll just be the doctor and I. And it's we're going we're gonna to talk about two things. We're going to talk about turkey hunting, which, yes, this is the Coffee and Beer show. But we've got some turkey stories to tell, and we're going to get into some tips and tactics. We'll just assume that a high percentage of the folks that listen here do turkey hunt. And so we might be the worst two people on earth to give anybody tips and tactics about turkey hunting. But if you want to follow the old saying of you can learn something from anybody, you might even be able to learn something from us. And so we'll see about that. At least at least you could learn from our mistakes. And the doctor is uh, laughing heavily. I see on my screen there. I wish you could see it. And uh, then we're going to end on more of a sad note. Uh, I had to say goodbye to uh, my longtime companion and friend, uh, my dog Arrow, this week uh, has passed away. So we're going to talk about that and generally just how hard it is to do that, to say goodbye to man's best friend. And that's something that the doctor has also endured. And so we'll just see where that goes. And I'm sure many of you listening have had to deal with that as well. So it'll be an odd combo, but I think uh, it'll make a good show here. Uh, sort of a mix of joy and sadness at the same time. So our sponsor for today is First Light. And I want to mention First Light has just released their new Origin hoodie, which I wish they'd quit doing this stuff because every time I see it, I feel like I need to have it. What do you think, Air Doc? I, I do agree because some of the features that they put in it, you can see the value and therefore all of a sudden next thing you know you're you're reaching for the wallet so i i get where you're coming from yeah i mean it's cool right because everything is always getting better and i think back to we're going to talk about turkey hunting i mean i think back to some of the first stuff we used to wear back in our day compared to where it is now and there's been monumental improvement and yet even that each year it seems like whether it be first light or other companies seem to keep coming out with even better stuff. But I want to say also the ultimate layering system, because also if you go to the First Light website right now, they're also showing what they call their turkey kits, where they kind of put some pieces together for you, which I think is very helpful. And I use this layering system just this past week in Delaware. Uh, My one hunt in particular started out at 32 degrees. And by, uh, excuse me, by mid-morning, it was already close to 60. And this happens a lot during turkey season, these wide temperature fluctuations and that layering system is so helpful and important. And I also want to say one more thing about First Light is that we have a pretty big announcement coming soon. We'll be doing our spring auction here before too long, where we uh, have a lot of great things that we we give away. And so we don't give away, we we raffle off and we also uh, have an auction and we have a partnership with First Light on part of that. So that's all I can say for right now. That's going to be coming out soon. So a lot of good things going on with our good friends at First Light and they are today's sponsor. Also reminder, NDA Giving Day coming up on May 11th. We talked about this on the last show. I'm going to talk about it on the next one as well until it happens. I can tell you that Lauren Varner, our chief development officer, has been working really, really hard on this. And so uh, we don't want to let her down. And also, we have some cool videos coming together to help promote this that I've had a chance to preview and check out, which are really neat. They even let me be in one of them, which I don't know if that's good or bad. Maybe you'll give to us because you feel sorry for us. Either way, we're happy to take your support and you'll look for those coming out soon. And I'll say, even if you give $5, that helps, okay? Because we're going to match up to $50,000 of contributions that day. We have an an anonymous donor that's willing to match up to 50,000. So if you give five, you're actually giving 10, which is pretty awesome. So NDA giving day, May 11th. Doc, I got to say, I'm going to have to call out our listeners a little bit here. We only got one Ask NDA Anything. What do you think about that? Well, I think this is, it could be the time of year um, as the weather's getting better. People are starting to move outside, get a little bit more active, but there's a lot of other distractions other than deer hunting habitat work, even though this is a very important habitat time of the year, but there's fishing season, turkey season has started. I know for some of us dog people, uh, there's shed hunting and there's uh, dog training. 
Uh, let's just chalk it up to our listeners are very active, outdoorsy type of people, and they've just been distracted. So I'll I'll play that. I'll play that card. That's very positive of you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I need positivity in my life right now. So I think that's good. All right. So that's what we're going to let, let you slide. But I do want to remind people, send your Ask NDA Anything questions to nick at dearassociation.com. And we will read them uh, if they're reasonable. <laughs> and uh, most of them are very good questions. And this is wide ranging. You can ask us anything about anything. Mostly we're expecting it to be about deer and deer hunting. But it doesn't always have to be. If you just have something fun you want to ask, if you want to know something personal about the doctor or I, uh, if you're that bored, we'll have an answer for you. So ask NDA anything. Let's go ahead and jump into our question for this episode. And this is a good one. It's very timely. And it's very simple, too. I kind of laughed whenever I read it because it's just a sentence. He says, this is Sean, by the way, from North Carolina. He says, why do I find more sheds turkey hunting? And so that's a great question because I've asked that myself at times. And so I have a theory on that, but Mike, I want to hear your thoughts first. Well, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. And the strange thing is, is I saw a post and I can't remember where it was. I don't know if it was on Instagram or I was just surfing the internet, but it was someone that actually was uh, showing themselves picking up a shed that was laying uh, tines up main beam down to the ground and it was a good size right side, but almost 85, 90% of it was covered up in leaves. So um, I don't know, again, we talked about like deer shed midwinter, but I don't know if it's just the wind as it starts to dry the leaves, they blow and they cover it up. And then as the leaves begin to break down, all of a sudden the following year, the antler exposes itself. But um I'm one of those people that I find more sheds turkey hunting as well. And I think it's because I am not an active shed hunter, but I'm an active turkey hunter. And I think when I turkey hunt, a lot of the locations for deer bedding, most more specifically buck bedding and buck feeding tend to be where turkeys will aggregate. And so as I'm moving through, I'm always moving through very stealthy and stopping and listening and glassing and calling. And next thing you know, you just either happen to stumble across one or see one and it takes you in that direction. But uh, that's, that's what I've observed in my career. And I can't speak anything else beyond that, but it's a good question. Yeah. And I can't really add much to your answer because I kind of feel the same way. The first part of it, you got, you got into finding sheds from previous years, which is that I think that's very true because the first shed that I found this year was from the previous year, not this year's shed. And this past week when I was out turkey hunting with, with Ron Haas, friend of the show, uh, we did a little antler searching too. And we also found sheds from previous years. Matter of fact, we found one that is like an identical shed this year to the one the previous year. And we're, we're 90% certain it's the same deer. It just had very little growth. I mean, it is like the identical antler from the same side. <laughs> very interesting. And so I think it's what you said. I think it's also that you're out there hunting. So you're a little more attuned to what's going on. You're a little more focused. I think that helps. And for some too, I think it's just simply a matter of maybe they don't really shed hunt too hard, but they're out there turkey hunting, covering a lot of ground. And so they have, they're upping their odds of finding something. So uh, anyway, good, good question, Sean. Thank you. That's our answer. I don't know if there's a scientific answer out there. Probably not, but I think that's, we're, I think we're close with that. I'll say. So again, more questions, get them in. We'll not, not, ex, not next episode, but the one after we'll read them. Nick at DeerAssociation.com. Ask NDA anything. So with that, let's go ahead now, Mike, and get into the meat of the show. We're not interviewing anybody. It's just us, but let's go ahead and jump into it. As I said at the outset of the show, I assume that many people listening here are turkey hunters. And no, we're not going to start doing a show about turkeys. But if you're a deer hunter, you're probably a turkey hunter. Or uh, we talked about shed hunting. You may go out and say, I'm really shed hunting, but I'm going to carry my turkey gun along just in case I happen to hear a bird, which was very much how I used to do things. 
but we're going to talk a little turkey hunting and give you some of our tips and strategies. And we're going to do it initially anyway, based off of two turkey hunts that I just had this past week in Delaware. And so Mike, I feel like the season is off to about as good a possible start as it could be, at least for me on my end so far. Yeah. You're setting the bar high for us, which is good. I guess I will just defer right now to living vicariously through you and kind of coattail on your success because with that being said, I'm not setting myself up for failure this season, but you know, failure, failure seems to be rather eminent in my life in regards to turkey hunting. So when, whenever you start off uh, as well as you have, uh, I get excited. So with that being said, I'll turn it over to you. All right. Well, I will, I've already told the doctor these stories, by the way, so he's going to hear him again. And I hope I tell the same story the second time, because uh, number one, I want to be truthful. And number two, I'm just getting old. So maybe I'd tell different versions of the story. So he'll check me if I get off track here, but yeah. So I got a chance to go to Delaware and, and go out and uh, hunt with Ron Haas, friend of the show. And uh, initially the first hunt was once again, this is the second year in a row that I had the opportunity to go turkey hunting with the governor of Delaware, uh, governor John Carney. And so last year, it was the first time I ever called for him and about mid morning was able to call in two long beards and he shot one of them and they put on a good show for him and the decoys and all that. And so this year he reached out again and said, Hey, <laughs> really like to have you come back and call turkeys again this year. And so Ron got it all set up and we went and took the governor out again. And so uh, we went out uh, first. I'll say this, and this is important. Ron living out there, I had a chance to go out and identify where there were some birds. Now there are some areas that we pretty much can assume that they're going to be birds or at least close by, but it's always important to go out and listen and, and just be aware because food, food changes uh, out there in the great Cypress swamp, you got water level changes that can impact movement. So you have to go out and verify. And Ron did that. He wasn't seeing a lot of turkeys, but he at least knew where there were, there were some. And so uh, we get up early in the morning and take the governor out. And, and the first thing we're doing is just listening. And I think that's key to a lot of your turkey hunts. You have a couple strategies. Number one, you can roost birds and, and know where they're at, where they're flying up and set up accordingly, or you can go out and listen and make your move from there. And that latter strategy has always seemed to work better for me. Doc, how about you? Would you rather, are you the type of guy that would rather roost birds and set up right on them? Or would you rather go listen first and then make your move? Um, oh, that's a tough question because the, the, would I rather, I'd rather actually have them roosted in the morning because then it gives me the rest of the evening to make a plan. Know when I have to get up, how early I have to be in and where I can uh, get my setup. But what often fits my life is another story where I don't have a lot of time in the evening. So therefore I do have to live that game of waking up in the morning and then waiting for the turkeys to reveal themselves. And then I develop a strategy of plan and then move. So um, I'd rather have them roosted, but I most often deal with having to have them gobble and then move in on them. Yeah. And hearing you say that makes me want to change my answer a little bit, because I think the rather part is yes. If you know where there are birds, that's a great starting point. But as I was explaining to the governor and we were standing there listening, I said, listen, I said, plan, there's always plan A, but I can tell you that the majority of the turkeys I've killed in my career happened on plan B or C of that same morning. So plan A is yes. If you know where the birds are, get set up. So I'm with you hundred percent on that. But whenever plan A fails, <laughs> And it does a lot. It's hard. People would think that's the easiest time to get one right off the roost. It's not often. Then you have to have plan B and plan C. So we, we stood there and we listened and we didn't hear a single bird. The crows started crowing. The geese started flying over. That usually sets off the gobblers. We didn't hear anything until about 20 minutes after daylight. And then finally, and well off, by the way, probably about 400 yards away, it would be a guesstimate because it was a little bit windy we finally had a bird gobble and we didn't move in right away. I told the, the governor, and this is a strategy that I like. I really, I kept telling him, I really like to let the turkeys be turkeys. There's, there are different uh, strategies. There are some guys that like to go crashing into the woods. They hear a gobble, they go right after it aggressively. 
And then there are some like myself that are more, I'm, I'm more of a listener. I want to, I want to be where the turkeys want to be. I try to figure out where they're going. Uh, Doc, where are you at on that? Actually, I'm a, I'm a happy medium. If I hear one gobble and it's just a silent morning and I hear that first one and I know it's at a distance, I'm going to try and cut the distance, but I'm not going to run up on him yet. I want to be closer. And I, and I don't know if that's because of my age and some of the, the hearing loss that I do suffer that my hearing is not as accurate. So I do need to be a little bit closer, but I want to be in the game. There's been times where I've had turkeys provide that courtesy gobble, you know, let me locate them. And I've waited to say, okay, let me hear them gobble again. And the second gobble is another 150, 200 yards in the opposite direction. And by then I'm so far behind them, there's no way I can get around them. So I try and cut that distance and be in a buffer zone. And truthfully, what my buffer zone is, is, is if I can be somewhere about 200 yards away, that's my buffer zone because I look at a hundred yards and in as being like the kill zone. So I want to be just on the fringe of that. Well, you are leading me right down a beautiful path because that's where I'm going next. And so we let the bird gobble another time and I called to the bird. Uh, and I, I, when he answered, I told the governor, I said, that's all I, I needed. I needed to know that he was within hearing distance of us. And I explained to him that because, you know, the governor, he, he's, you know, he's chatting and so on out there in the turkey woods. And, and I, I like it to be completely silent. So I'm trying to also tell him, you know, let's let's try to be quiet here, too. And let's be very cautious, because I said the minute that turkey responded to me, he knows where we're at. Like he knows, like almost exactly where we're at. And so he's pinpointed our location. And so then at that point, uh, Ron says to me, let's let's go ahead and move in on him. We knew of a uh, a long sort of old logging road that runs along some loblolly pines, what we call the pine thinning. And our thought was that if we could coax the bird toward that road and I would have a de have the decoys set out, he would walk that road directly to us. Because another thing about gobblers, when they're looking for hens this time of year, this time of year, more than any other, they want to be visible. So they want to be able to see, but they also want to be seen. And so roads, I love, I love roads on the interior of, of woods because it gives you a chance to see the bird a long way. And it also really helps you with decoying, which I also really like to do. And so that's what we did. We snuck down the road and we got a, what I would call uh, what looked like a great setup. Now, uh, as, as the doctor can attest, we've had many beautiful setups that looked wonderful on paper, but nothing good ever come out of it. Right, Doc? That's true because, well, turkeys are, they're, they're creatures and they have, as small as it might be, they just have a mind of their own. And there's times that I feel personally that we overthink the process sometimes. So like you said, if you can just keep it simple where we do know that they have a tendency to want to be seen and see if you can set up accordingly, where it might be, yes, that Turkey comes up over this um, finger Ridge. There's a, there's a high spot versus a low spot where, where do I think he's going to come over? Um, you know, when he comes around this specific bend, where can, where can he see the turkeys and, is he going to keep moving that way or is he going to want to stay there? So there's all those things that we've seen where the setup to us is bulletproof and they wind up making us look foolish. Absolutely. And that's, that's part of the, the fun and the challenge, right? I mean, it's not always going to work out. It rarely does, but when it does, it's a beautiful thing. And we're going to talk about a beautiful thing now. So uh, we tucked the governor back in a little bit off the road and Ron sat right with him. And the nice thing is if, if you can do it, if you can have somebody that really is just a designated caller, what I like to do when I'm in that situation is I will set up behind between, I will put the decoys between in the hunter between me and where that bird is gobbling. And I want to give that bird the impression that he needs to walk past the shooter to get to find this uh, hen that he's looking for. So we had the governor set up about 15 yards, maybe 20 yards ahead of me and off to the left. And I'm looking right up the road. And because I'm not too worried about shooting unless we get doubles coming in, I was pretty much tucked into a big brush pile where I could be hidden, but I could still see. And I called when the bird answered after we called again, he was still far off, but I was real patient because I was trying to determine, is this a gobbler that's on the ground with a bunch of hens and we're just getting courtesy gobbles? Because if that's the case, you're, you're not going to be in any hurry. You're going to be waiting a while, or is he going to close the distance and then we'll see? Well, 
is we are sitting there another 10 or 15 minutes went by and I was just about to make another call. And I looked and I thought I caught a glimpse of that purple head kind of going through the woods off in the distance. So I just gave it a couple really soft. And again, you don't have to call loud. I think that's one of the mistakes a lot of turkey hunters make is they call too loud and it's very unnatural. If you've ever heard a hen in the woods, sometimes they can get loud, but for the most part, it's very soft purring. And that's what I did. I just gave a couple real soft putts and a purr and that gobbler lit up and he was right on us. And at that point I heard Ron tell the governor, he said, get your gun, John, because <laughs> his gun was kind of down. And now I'm observing and I can see up that road and I'm watching this Tom. He's by himself. He's, he's fanned out and he's sort of walking fanned out up this road. And I know they can't see him yet, but I can see him. And I just sort of smiled to myself because Mike, you'll know this as an experienced turkey hunter. There are just times when, you know, we got him. He's in a bad situation. He's coming. He has, he sees the decoys. He's fanned out. I have to say, I was feeling pretty good about our odds at that point. Yeah. I call that moment in the funnel. You know, when, when the birds in the funnel, you know, they're coming and that's a very gratifying moment. I mean, I think even more so than the shot because you work so hard to actually put them in that effective range. But um, (laughs) yeah, I just find it amusing. I was, I was sitting here thinking about, you know, calling and to kind of reflect back. I've actually called in more birds for people than I've shot myself to come to think of it. Yeah. And there's something fun about that because you're, you're completely eliminating sort of the adrenaline of worrying about a shot and so on. You're just so focused on calling and it's sort of a, it's, it's less pressure. Right. And so I've come to really enjoy calling for people. And so at any rate, the bird's coming and I've got that feeling like it's happening. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. You can still certainly mess up at this point, <laughs> which, which I have, but this bird was locked in and he's coming And one little thing. And we're talking strategy here and, and, and we'll go over the different strategies used here in just a second, but I set the Jake, I have a, a decoy spread that I like to use. And I really am a fan of Dave Smith decoys. Now they're no sponsor of us or anything like that. I'm just telling you, they are to me, the best decoys you can buy. And I I like to use a Jake and two hens when I can. And I set the Jake directly in the governor's shooting lane. And I put the hens back a little bit. And the reason I did that is I wanted the turkey to see the hens first. But my thought was when he sees the Jake, he's going to respond and he's actually going to break from the hens and try to chase that Jake off. And he'll be right in the governor's shooting lane. And just like clockwork, just like you draw it up, as rarely happens, uh, the gobbler comes into view and he sees the Jake. And his complete demeanor changed and he turned and immediately went right at the Jake. And now at this point, I'm just waiting to hear boom. And I wasn't disappointed. Uh, The governor pulled the trigger, dropped the turkey and high fives ensued. And it was just one of those ones that went 100% according to script. I probably only called that bird. I probably only made calls to that bird maybe four times because it wasn't necessary to do more. Let them do the work. Let turkeys be turkeys. That's what we did. And we had a happy governor. And as I told Ron, I said, if, if we're going to commit some type of major crime in the state, let's do it now while the governor will certainly pardon us. So uh, Governor John Carney got his second bird in two years and it all worked out. And so what do you think of that strategy, Mike? I mean, obviously it worked, but is that what you would have done as well? I think so. Uh, to hear you explain the thought process and uh, what I appreciate is the fact that you were providing the information of, of the way the turkey responded, because to make those decisions, you have to know what the turkey does and react in real time. And this early in the season, when you're um, the birds haven't been hunted too much, obviously Delaware opens up long before we do here in Pennsylvania, the birds probably haven't been called to very often. So just trying to be as natural as possible. We should always try and be natural, but I guess what I want to tell everybody is that don't pull out every last bag in your trick, you know, every last trick in your bag, I should say early in the season, if you don't have to let the, let the Turkey determine or tell you what it wants and then have enough tricks in your bag to be able to give them what they need to finish and close the deal. So I think that's what I appreciate more about what you're saying is the fact that you just gave the turkey as much as that bird needed 
to work without overdoing because we like to hear them gobble. We do, and it gets us excited. And it's it's very hard to sit there quietly and let the bird close. But more often than not, the success comes in with using your head, slowing down, and reading that turkey and only providing them as much as they need to keep moving forward. Yep. I think that's perfectly said. I agree. I do not, I'm not a loud crash into the woods kind of turkey hunter. Usually we do love to hear them gobble, but it's not about that. It's about bringing them in. And by the way, we didn't hear another bird that whole morning gobble. And matter of fact, I went out and tried to hunt a little bit after we got his bird taken care of, and we didn't get another bird to even answer. And so again, here are the tactics that paid off here and things for you to remember. Uh, The first thing is knowing birds are there, which Ron did. And most recent information, just the day before, Ron had been in there and heard the birds and saw a, a gobbler by himself. It very likely could have been this gobbler. So most recent information, patience. We've talked a ton about patience. Don't overdo it. Uh, decoy visibility. I think a lot of people that have decoys, they just go stick them out somehow, and they don't put a lot of thought behind it. Uh, we don't have time to get into all kinds of different strategies here. I gave you one just now on this particular hunt. But go on places like YouTube and watch some of these experienced turkey hunters and see how they use them. The Heartland Bow Hunter guys, for example, is a great place to go because they have to bring in birds and use decoys and they have to shoot them with a bow and arrow. So again, that's that's a good example. Learn from them. And there's there's there really is a art to it. Uh, a clear path. Make sure that you're not putting too much between you and that bird. You know, you don't want to set up on the other side of a raging river, for example. You're not going to get that bird across there. So think about where you want to call the bird to and the calling. Again, less can be more. Only do what's necessary. You don't have to do more than that. So that was a great hunt. Mike, do you want to add anything to those tactics before I move on? Yeah, actually, yeah, I do. I mean, this is kind of more rabbit hole stuff, which is kind of the way my mind works. But uh, the first tip, when you mentioned decoys, I can't claim this one myself, but it's something that I was taught by Denny Galvis, uh, just a tremendous turkey hunter in Pennsylvania. And the one thing that I heard him say was when you set out the decoys, especially if you're rushing around, you talked about placement, visibility, and then to make the, the shot as optimal for the shooter as you can. But with that being said, and the only reason I'm saying this is because of um, a decoy issue I had this past fall with deer hunting, but making sure that decoys posture looks like a turkey. If you actually stick the stake in the ground, the turkey's leaning over at a 45 degree angle, or if the head is uh, tipped up way too high, we always think about the, the vocabulary of turkeys, but there's a lot that turkeys actually read into a situation with their eyes. And so making sure that your decoys are positioned anatomically natural based on the environment. So that was a big tip that's really helped me moving forward. And then the last thing, if there's any new turkey hunters out there, I just want to talk about a mistake that I made that cost me years um, of quality turkey hunting. And we talked about always wanting to hear turkeys gobble. Unfortunately, I learned how to turkey call from like the real tree and the mossy oak videos back in the eighties. And, you know, these guys were caught like, and, and I think it's a lot of it was where the camera was positioned and the microphone and the sound quality, but the calling was very loud. And so I learned how to call, but I learned how to call loud. And it took me almost a decade to really, cause I never really had a good turkey hunting mentor. It took me like a decade to figure out how to get quiet. And like, I was actually getting more, I heard more turkeys gobble and had more turkeys responding in those 10 years than I have had ever since in that kind of capacity in regards to gobbling and being very vocal, but then they'd get to a certain point and I was practically just screaming in their face when they were at 80 yards at 50 yards. And I I never, I had so much trouble having them close the distance because I didn't know how to get quiet. And once I learned that, um, I will have to say that my turkey hunting success for myself and everyone else went up. So, um, just make sure you need to realize that what you hear either on YouTube or wherever you're watching your, your turkey hunting content. First of all, if you can listen to turkeys, that's all the better, but realize that when someone's giving you turkey hunting media, think about the volume that they're trying to produce just so that you can hear it. A lot of times, a lot of the turkey calls that we use now or that I use now, you couldn't even hear them from 15 yards away, but the turkey can. So um, 
those are, I guess, my biggest two tips and mistakes that I've made in my career that I think hopefully will help somebody out there. Certainly will. Yeah, definitely learn from our mistakes and the things we've learned from, especially if you're new. So now we've got the governor's turkey out of the way. You can't hunt turkeys on Sunday in Delaware. You can't hunt deer, ironically. Uh, but anyway, if I'm making the trip over there, I stayed through Sunday and planned to hunt on Monday morning. So, of course, we use Sunday as a scouting day and also um, went out and did some shed hunting. And We found several sheds. Matter of fact, if you go to my Instagram page, you'll see uh, some pictures there with the sheds we found, which was cool. Uh, but we, we were scouting. And so we went out. And the first places we listened in the morning were near where we were with the governor. We didn't hear a single bird. And we moved over to another section of the swamp and there was a bird just going absolutely crazy. And so he was, this bird was literally right on the Maryland Delaware line, by the way, but he was on the Delaware side. And so uh, our game plan was simple. Most recent information that bird's going crazy. We're going to come here in the morning and we're going to see if we can get it to talk. So it's one of those beautiful mornings. Like I said earlier, it was 32 degrees, so a little chilly, but clear skies. The wind had finally died down and we go and we get this perfect little setup and we're waiting and we're waiting and we're waiting. And would you believe that bird never, who knows where he even went, but he never made a noise and we never saw him. So you're sitting there thinking, wait a minute, this bird was red hot yesterday. Now, all of a sudden today, he's disappeared. And this is where the plan A, plan B stuff comes in. So plan A didn't work. And it could have been for a lot of reasons. Maybe the birds just didn't want to talk. I mean, they're, they're wild animals. So you just never know. I will say walking out and walking back to the truck, we're walking along the edge of this uh, farm field. And there are these big gobbler tracks right in the sand. there, fresh. So there was a bird on the ground that morning. He just didn't want to talk for whatever reason. And so we go to plan B and we went over to an area, actually the area where the governor shot his bird last year, not this season here, but the previous season, because it's an area where even if the birds aren't talking, you know, turkeys are around. We'd saw some fresh dusting bowls there. So there was plenty of sign. And so the game plan now was to just set up and be patient and wait for that mid-morning break where the gobblers will break from the hens often, get the decoys out there, be visible, call occasionally and see what happens. And so this is usually my plan B. Unless I hear a bird gobbling somewhere else, my plan B is to go to one of those places. Uh, Mike, is that, is that the way you like to play it as well? Um, at times, yes. For me, I've always prided myself in the fact that I always knew where turkeys had been. I scout them out rather well. And so I would actually do what you're saying. Now, you're just saying that this is habitat that historically turkeys like to be in. For me, I know that, okay, I have a gobbler here. I have a gobbler there. I have a pair over here. So I, I also run the calculations in my head of when I've seen them or heard them in those areas, because at different times of the day, they hit different strutting zones. And so for me, I will try and actually anticipate those movements. And if I don't have something in the morning, I know, okay, by nine o'clock, I got to be over here and I got to drive 15 miles to get there. And so I'm a little bit more um, tactical that way, just because of scouting. But in those situations, if you are familiar with historic Turkey strutting area, like mid morning, um, then by all means get in there and, and just sit up and be quiet, especially if it's a spot that, you know, turkeys will be in and out of all day long. And that's exactly what we did and put the decoys out there and watching this open area. And I got to say, it was probably at least 45 minutes before we finally heard something and a gobbler had opened up and Ron was sitting behind me. I kind of looked over my shoulder. I'm like, all right, we're in now because that bird's right there. And I know he can hear me. And so made a couple calls, but still sat patient. I figured he wants to make it to that open area, that little food plot area. And when he sees the decoys, there's a chance he'll come in or he might still be with hens who knows, but we have to be patient. And it wasn't long after that. Uh, I was actually exchanging a text message with a coworker <laughs> And I, I happened to look up and there's a hen right on top of us and she's coming right into my decoy. And so I'm sort of frozen there and I'm like, I'm thinking, boy, I hope the heck there's not a gobbler right behind her because my gun is like sort of down on my leg and not pulled up. And so the hen comes in and proceeds to fight with my one hen decoy, which I've seen this before. This is not uncommon. And she just pecked and pecked and pecked at that, the head of that decoy, trying to fight it, jumped up on it at one point. And you were talking about making everything look natural. Well, she had kind of pushed it to where it was looking 
a little bit cockeyed. And then eventually she moved off because I could still hear that gobbler and hear my call. I dropped my call and I couldn't find it. It was kind of under my leg and I'm looking for it. And as she caught my movement and she walked, ended up walking away, she didn't putter anything, but she did leave. And so I ended up having to grab my second call out of my pocket. So now I'm on my second call and trying to get that thing warmed up and uh, I get it warmed up and start making some calls. And I hear that other bird gobble again. I'm like, man, if we're just patient, he's going to come in. Well, in the meantime, I can hear Ron. He's just giving me one of those. So I know he's trying to point me to something. I thought he said to your left and I'm looking to my left and I'm not seeing anything. And finally, I hear him say to your right. And I look over to my right and out at the edge of the food plot about maybe 60 yards away is this old Tom standing there with his neck stretched out and he's all by himself. And so I can't move yet because my gun's still down. But what I do is I just I, I let him put his head down and I made a couple little chirps to him. And he was coming. And so he went in behind some cover enough for me to get my gun ready. And he's just kind of walking in. Now, this bird, talking about reading body language of bird, he didn't, he didn't puff up and he didn't come in strutting. And I think it's because the bird we were hearing wasn't this bird. There's a dominant bird out there. And this one came in more timid because he didn't want to get his butt kicked again. And so he kind of came in timid, but he was definitely coming. And uh, ultimately, he sees, longer story short, he sees the decoys. And he turns and sort of makes a beeline and he's coming. I, it's one, again, one of those moments you call the funnel. He's in the funnel and I had a choice. I'm like, can I, I can shoot him as soon as I can, or I can let him get into the decoys and put a show on. I decided to shoot as soon as I had the opportunity, because again, he was a little bit timid and I didn't want him to see that uh, decoy lean in a little bit sideways and get finicky about it and run off. And so I made the shot and that was it. And so two, two days of turkey hunting, two gobblers. It is not that easy folks. Uh, and so I did not take that for granted at all. Um, some key points on there uh, for that hunt to take away flexibility. Plan A doesn't work. You got to go to plan B knowing the history where have there been birds in the past that you can always count on. I have a few of those spots that I always keep in my back pocket, even here in Pennsylvania, where I just know there are going to be birds, uh, decoy setup again, I think was key and taking the shot when it was available. I have made mistakes in the past of passing on shots, you know, waiting for, I don't know what I'm waiting for, but when you have that shot, you should take it. You have an opening, take it and just reading the bird, the body language of the bird. So not a bad Turkey hunt, Mike. No, no, it wasn't. I, I'm just going to back up a little bit and tell a quick story. You mentioned about how that bird was, you know, in like on the border of Maryland and Delaware, there was one time but, uh, years ago that I actually drove, woke up at, you know, middle of the night, literally to drive up to New York to turkey hunt, hunted all morning long, never heard a bird and just walked and called, walked and called. Finally, mid morning, I hear one answer. And so I start moving. And as I move down off this, this knob, I realized, cause it's very clearly marked there that I've moved from New York into Pennsylvania. Well, I had license. I'm licensed in both States and I didn't have a tag filled in either state. And I try and work this bird to call him because like, for some reason, this is the way my mind works. If I drove to New York, I'm killing one in New York. I tried to work that bird and he would not cross that state line. (laughs) I crossed into Pennsylvania on foot, called him right up to 10 yards and darn it. For some reason, I would not shoot him because I'm like, you know what? I didn't drive this far to shoot a Pennsylvania bird. I left that bird walk off. Now that's, what do you think about that? Is that just stupid? Is that just, is that me? And you know, all over. Well, just look at the story you have. That's a pretty good story. So we'll, we'll take it as a positive. It's funny you mentioned these property lines or in this case, a state line. There was a video posted recently by the hunting public that if uh, you should check out, go to YouTube, where they, uh, I think two different times had this bird. You're looking at the paint on the tree of where it was not public land. And this bird would not come across that paint. And it was just pretty intriguing video and a good hunt. But yeah, I mean, sometimes that happens. It's property lines, it's state lines, it's whatever. Uh, but you got to persevere and you got to stick after it. And so uh, anyway, I think those two stories and going over the tactics, I think should be helpful to you, hopefully. And again, we will have many other stories I'm sure that we'll share in next in the upcoming episodes of failures as we get closer to our Pennsylvania season. So looking forward to that. All right, let's transition. Uh, that was the fun part. I wasn't sure whether to do the fun part or the not fun part first on this show. Uh, I decided to do the fun part first. And so the second part's not so fun. 
Uh, earlier this week, I had to say goodbye to my longtime dog and my hunting buddy, buddy Arrow, aptly named. <laughs> and uh, Arrow is a girl, by the way, because that's that's sort of a, one of those names. It's like, you know, a Chris, like, is it Christine or is it Christopher? Right. Uh, so Arrow is a girl. And so uh, we'll get that straight out uh, out of the gate. And so she was 14 years old and she's a red tick hound. A red, she had a little bit of a mix in her, but if you really look at her, she just looks like a red tick hound. And uh, I grew up, my dad raised red tick hounds and I was part of that. And I just became partial to them. And then whenever uh, we were interested in getting a dog, um, matter of fact, my wife and I weren't even married yet at the time. Uh, we waited and watched shelters until, uh, that's what I really wanted. I wanted a red tick hound and hound. There was one a couple hours away drive, but there was hound available. Matter of fact, they picked up a few hounds that were, they were puppies still. They were just maybe a, a few months old, but they were picked up as just sort of running loose. And so I said, we need to go see these dogs. And so we make the drive down there and it's funny because the dog, we thought we were going to see, they didn't bring out to us. There was a one that was sort of a black color that was in the picture. And here they bring out what turned out to be arrow, who was a classic looking red tick hound. And so, uh, they bring her out and I'm just looking at, I'm like, well, that's not the dog we came to see, but, but arrow immediately like ran up to me and just like sat at my feet and leaned against me and wanted loved and just immediately we just had this connection and it was, it was just so odd to explain. And I'm not even exaggerating. It's just one of those things. And anybody that's gone, whether it be to pick out a puppy or whatever, it's a, it's an interesting thing. You just, you don't know what it is all the time, but it's just something. And you, you, you feel that something and you make a choice and, and you go with it. And so I did say, well, we should at least see the other dog that we came to see to be sure, but man, I'm really partial to this one. <laughs> And they brought the other dog out and we walked it around. And the other dog was, to be honest with you, it was just really dumb. <laughs> it just wouldn't hold eye contact with you. It just wanted to do its own thing. And so it was pretty easy choice. Then we decided that Arrow was going to be our dog and we brought her home. And before I go further, Mike, you've been in that spot where you're, you're picking out a dog. I mean, do you, do you feel those same kind of feelings? Like you're just looking for that connection. You might not know exactly what it is, but you're just looking for it. Well, because I've always, and this is, you know, not, not saying anything good or bad against shelter dogs, but because I've always bought dogs with a purpose, I've always bought uh, dogs from breeders that had specific traits that I was looking for because I was uh, hunt testing and trialing for years. But what I have found is that uh, when I was younger and I didn't really have a name behind myself, I just whatever dog they picked in the order that I was due was either, you know, shipped out in a plane and I went to an airport to pick it up. But then as I got older and, and um, started winning and, and getting some, the word out there about my dogs, people reached out to me and then started letting me pick. And yes, once I started to be able to interact with the litter, I was able to actually see that. And uh, obviously, you know, I have Remy here, uh, drove to New Hampshire to get her, um, you know, over a year ago and she wasn't the one aesthetically. I mean, that's the one thing there's a lot of people pick with their eyes. A lot of people pick with their hearts. And then a lot of people pick with, you know, just, I, I knew one trainer that he would just walk up to a, a pen and wave his hand over the top of it. And whichever dog picked its nose up first to try and smell his hand, he figured that dog had a good nose. That's when he wanted. So, um, but Remy, for some reason, and again, this is my wife's doing more than anything else. I was just about to drive, like walk out the door to drive up to New York because I was staging up there. And my wife said, make sure you pick a good dog that that was going to really be nice for the family. And darn it, you know how our wives do that to us or husbands in, the, in some situations where you're like, oh, I, I really wanted another dog. But Remy had this personality that I'm like, that's the dog my wife technically was wanting me to grab. So that's the one I, that I took home. And I will tell you what, my wife wasn't wrong. Remy's been amazing that way. Yeah. So at the end of the day, there's a science to it, but there's also just a, a general feeling too, that you have to have. And so that's what we had with Arrow. And so um, we adopted her, brought her home. 
And the first thing I'll tell you about this dog is she had too much energy at first. I mean, she, uh, for, uh, she was almost three before she finally started to calm down. One of the things I remember, I mean, she was just so happy too. always a happy dog. And right up to her last day was still a happy dog. Um, and so I, I remember that she, when we got her spayed, it was impossible to keep her still so that her stitches could heal. And so we had to deal with that and she had to be restitched at one point. And it just, <laughs> just those types of things. So, so much energy. And, uh, initially I didn't, even though she's a hunting breed, I didn't get her for the idea of that. I wanted her as a pet, first of all, but I also thought I could train her to blood trail deer being an archery hunter. I was always intrigued by that. And she was doing well, I think initially. And then what happened though, we, we had a big life change and we ended up moving to North Dakota. And so we sort of abandoned the blood trailing for a little bit and we get to North Dakota and I had people saying, Oh, I was going to work for Delta waterfowl foundation. And they said, Oh, are you going to get a lab now to hunt ducks? And I said, well, no, I have a dog. And I said, I'll bet I can train her to hunt ducks. And they just sort of looked at me and laughed. I said, listen, I said, this dog will, will do anything I ask it. And I, I even ended up writing an article about it in the, is in the Delta waterfowl magazine that I think the title was, if your dog loves you, it'll, it'll, it can learn anything. And so we took arrow out to the swamp and with a little help from my colleagues out there, I learned a couple of things. Number one, that arrow could do anything if I asked her to do it. And she was a really, she was a great swimmer. She loved retrieving. I mean, that dog, uh, yeah, I took her to get cremated and included a tennis ball with her because that's another thing I always identified that dog with. She just loved a tennis ball and she was really great at retrieving because of that. And so she just caught on to it immediately. And then pretty soon I introduced feathers to the, to the uh, bumper so she could get used to that feeling. And long story short, I had a red tick hound that could retrieve ducks. Now <laughs> the downside of that was uh, she's short haired and she's not really meant to be sitting out in the cold. So it was an early season thing. And I had to really watch her. And if she started to shiver, then I would put her in the truck and I would finish duck hunting or we'd just go home. And so uh, that was a great moment for us. And we got some great photos and it was just a great time. And so I, I also out there would take her along pheasant hunting. She had no idea what she was doing, right? But she was just a companion. And so it was a lot of fun in North Dakota. And then uh, we moved back, moved closer back to home. We moved to Ohio. And at that point, uh, I took her shed hunting. We did tons of walks. She's another, in addition to the tennis ball, anytime she ever saw her leash, it's like she was heartbroken if she wasn't going for a walk. So we did tons of walks. Um, you know, she just would go crazy when she'd see her chain. And uh, we also, I should have mentioned along the lines here, when we had her for two years, we brought another dog into the family, Suki, who they became fast friends. And uh, actually, we worry about Suki now that Arrow's gone, but uh, we would take them on a ton of walks together. Uh, but then another major change happened for her, and that's when our son was born. And I still, as silly as this sounds, I still feel bad about that because that became a major change in the relationship between me and the dog. Not because I love the dog less, but just because you have a child now. And so that naturally meant less time that I would spend with, with Arrow. And it was hard. I remember the look of that dog's eyes when we brought our son home. She just looked at me as if I brought another puppy into the house. And I felt like I had let her down somehow, even though it was a joyous moment. And, and I'll say, you know, with a smile on my face, she never really did connect with my son. <laughs> you know, they never connected. He didn't really connect with her and she didn't really connect with him, although they did have a, a sort of a precious moment whenever he was saying goodbye to her uh, on her last day. But um, they just it was there was a jealousy there and it was just interesting, but it changed a lot. Uh, changed a lot for her. And I still, you know, to some level feel badly about that. Um, but anyway, uh, we noticed she was slowing down at this point. Uh, when we moved back to Pennsylvania, she at that point was, was uh, 10, almost 11 years old. She's a, a larger breed. So you're getting into the sort of expected life expectancy of a dog of that size. Matter of fact, I never had growing up, we never had coon hounds that lasted that long. I think we had one that maybe was 11 at one point. Uh, she's not chasing the tennis ball like she used to maybe once or twice. Uh, and then the last six months, we definitely noticed dramatic weight loss. Uh, you know, right before your very eyes, she's kind of wasting away. But what's hard about it is 
her demeanor was always so positive and she was always so happy. You couldn't tell when she was feeling down, even though you knew she was feeling down. And so uh, eventually this leads to a vet appointment where I'm taking her in. And I know, I know that there's something wrong at this point. She's 14. Um, I'm watching this decline and, and we go in and the, they do some x-rays and, you know, the vet says, listen, um, she's, she has a tumor in her stomach. She's 14 years old. She's got some natural fusing that's going on in her spine. So she's probably uncomfortable there just from age. Uh, and, you know, it's up to you. We can operate on a 14 year old dog, but it's probably not advisable. And, you know, just basically I give the vet credit. He said, we're, we're here for you for whatever decision you decide. And so that's tough, right? I knew going in that there was a problem. She had had some bowel movement issues that I was aware of. And I thought that probably there was something internal intestinal with her that was an issue. And I was right. And so really the decision at that point was I did not want to say goodbye to her in a vet's office. Um, I wanted something more than that. I wanted to, to set up an in-home appointment, which we ultimately did. And I, I did that right away because it, here with, I don't know where it is everywhere else in the country, but to get a vet appointment right now is you're looking at four to six weeks out. And that's where we were. And I thought, well, I'll get this scheduled and then we can monitor her. And if she does take a turn for the worst, then we, we can just go to the vet and that's fine. Uh, but they gave us some pretty strong medication. And that was, that was a plus for her because she almost acted like herself for a while there. It was, it was tough though for us because I'm sitting there feeling like, oh, she's getting better. Maybe, you know, maybe this isn't the right decision. And that's, what's really hard because you don't know. I mean, you do know, but you don't want to believe it. And so uh, the day kept coming closer to closer and closer. And that day became Tuesday of this week. And I I guess I would uh, uh, just categorize it as uh, easily one of the worst days of my life. Uh, It's, you're, you're leading up to that day and you're, you're holding it together, but then it gets down to uh, taking final pictures. I mentioned my son being able to say goodbye. Uh, my wife, obviously very broken up. I had them, I asked them to leave the house. Uh, and so they did that. And uh, the, the vet showed up and uh, with uh, the technicians and you know, it, we were we were there with her on her bed where she had laid a lot. And even in recent days, I could tell we even with the medication, she wasn't doing well. And so, uh, you know, it was it was I, I guess I would describe it this way. Having never had to go through this. Uh, it was a it was as painful, but beautiful as a moment as you could have at one time, because ultimately I knew it was the right thing. I'm still struggling with a lot of guilt because, and, and doc, you and I talked about this the other day when, when we talked, ultimately it was my decision to say, this is what we need to do. And so I feel like that I made the decision of when her life was going to end. And that, that comes with a lot of guilt and I still feel I'm still reconciling that. But one thing that's helping me, especially the last day or so is that I, I have to remember that she wasn't getting better and she had a chance to leave with dignity and I think that's, that's, what's kind of carrying me through right now. So, um, yeah, I mean, to, to do it and, and the vet said, you know, you can, you can be with her or not. And, uh, it sucked for me, but I had absolutely had to be with her and, uh, I just try to try to hold it, hold it together here. Uh, you know, I'm the last uh, thing that she saw. And that's, that's tough. Uh, Way, way harder than, than I thought. And Mike and Mike and I, neither of us are big feelings guys. (laughs) So uh, that, that makes this even harder because you try to, you try to hold all those feelings back. I'll jump in here real quick to give you a second, but that's how, that's how we have to heal. I mean, everyone has to heal differently and and letting your, letting your feelings out when you are ready to let your feelings out is always, you know, where the healing process begins. And 
I'll tell you a story, you know, for all, uh, for all of you listening out there, if you're ever in that situation, because I've had to have, you know, multiple dogs put down and because I'm a, you know, I've ran them hard and and trained them long. It doesn't mean that they're just, they're tools to me. They're, they are part of the family. When my German short hair um, had a tumor, the size of a softball in his liver and the vet, I took him in same thing that Nick was saying is that he, uh, he was losing weight. I mean, I kept, I keep a very close eye on my dog's weight and he was dropping weight. I adjusted his food, no change, adjusted the volume of food, no change, supplemented, no change. It's time to go to the vet. They do an x-ray. He has a tumor on his liver, the size of a softball. The vet says he's not going to last much longer. It's actually going to, it's pushing on some structures that is going to shut him, him down within the next, you know, six to 10 days. I suggest you put them down today. And as wow. Nick said, you know, we were kind of raised in a, in a tougher time where our dads were kind of like, you know, rub a little dirt on it, take a lap, you know, you don't, you know, guys don't cry, um, keep your chin up, you know, be kind to you know, respect your elders, be kind to women. And, you know, just kind of the whole, the whole old school mentality. And I will tell you what I, I got, it almost felt like I got muscled into that. So what my point is to kind of loop back around, if you're ever in the vet and you're in that situation where they do a study, it comes back, it doesn't look good. I will tell you from my personal experience that take that dog home and give yourself some time as selfish as that sounds. But I'd also say, give that, that pet some time as well with you knowing what what was the writing that's on the wall, because I made the decision of, okay, well then let's go ahead and, and do this. My family never got to say goodbye to Mojo. Um, my wife, I just sent her out to the car. I said, I'll, I'll take care of it. It was, I was a train wreck. I was just wrecked. And, um, I would say that where you knew it was coming, took the time, selected the day, selected the time, had the, those last few special moments. You can take that with you. Once Mojo went down, that was nine years before I got, it took me nine years to, be ready to get another dog again, um, just because of how badly that last one went. So those situations, even though we feel guilty about making the decision to take a life, just very similar. I'm not gonna say that I feel guilty to shoot a deer. I feel a certain amount of responsibility when I mm-hmm. shoot a deer or a duck or a pheasant or whatever or turkey. We as hunters, we actually feel that responsibility because we know the the gravity of it. But we also have to couch it in a way that makes it, makes it okay. And what that does, that makes us better moving forward. It makes us as hunters practice and make better shots. Uh, it makes us be more ethical. It makes us, some of us, you know, like at this point, I don't celebrate much. I don't hoop and holler. Um, when I, when I actually take a life, I actually, you know, I'm, I'm a quiet, I'm being respectful and that's, and that's okay for me. I'm not saying that hooping and hollering is wrong. I'm just saying, I choose not to do that. So with that being said, you know, as going, getting back to the whole emotional thing is that it's okay to let your emotions out in a way that you're comfortable with, whether that's sadness, whether that's joy, whether that's hopefully, you know, anger, we can all control our anger, but you know, in, in regards to like sadness and joy and things like that, let, let the emotions out because that's where the, the healing starts. And that's where the actual reward starts. If it's a, if it's a positive thing, your first deer, your first Turkey, you know, it's okay to, to be giddy and, and hoop and holler. Um, you know, I've done it enough now where I, I want to be, I want to be as connected to that animal as I possibly can. So um, I know that was kind of like a little bit of a rant, but hopefully, you know, you're ready to pick it up from here. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for buying me some time. Um, yeah. I mean, you, you, you try to be, you know, you try to be a tough guy and, and not show, I don't, I don't like showing any emotion that I've had many people say, like, I don't know. I, I have a bit of a shield up at times and, you know, you're, you're probably the same way, Mike. And that's maybe why we hit it off. Right. So, um, and so you, you find out that somewhere in there, you're maybe not that person. Maybe you do have some feelings. And so, um, yeah, I would say that this has been way harder than I ever thought it would be. And so, and I'm not ashamed of that for sure. I'm still, I have moments where I'm fine. And then I have, you know, this morning I went out for a walk and I'm walking along and I'm fine. And then all of a sudden I'm not like, boom, it just hits you. And to your point about, it took you nine years to get another dog. I mean, 
right now as I'm sitting here, I don't, I don't want another dog. I, Cause I can't do that. You know, I just can't do this, have that level of connection. And so you know, that may change. I'm not dumb enough to sit here and say never, ever, but as I'm sitting here right now, it just does not feel like what I want to do. And so from a practical side, everything changes, you know, like from a funny perspective, like I'll let Suki into the house from being outside and I'll keep the door open because Suki would always come in and an arrow would come in after her. So I'm still not used to, you know, the timing and uh, getting all that squared away. And it, at night, the last time they go out and treat time and all that, there's, you're only given one treat out to, to our dog Suki and not two. And so there'll be that adjustment too. But I also, I do know that in time, you know, the healing will, will happen and, and we'll move on. So um, she's getting cremated. We'll pick up the ashes here. Uh, probably this week and uh, go from there. So yeah, 14 years, that's not quite a third of my life, but a a big part of it. And so uh, tough times around here. Anyone else that's lost a pet can relate to this. And if you haven't lost one yet, um, I think the doctor gave some good advice there. Um, Give them lots of love, spend as much time with them as you can and know that even though you have to make this decision that you really, I think you'll come to find that it's it's the best decision uh, for the animal. And someone pointed out to me and they're right. We, we treat our pets more kindly in these situations than we do our own relatives because we have these options. So I'll leave it, leave it at that. And let's try to close with something positive <laughs> if we can. But anyway, thank you everybody for listening to that because it's, it's good therapy for me to talk about it. I find that the more I talk about it, the more I, I feel a little bit better. So uh, thank you for listening. Mike, speaking of funny, I bought 200 pounds of buckwheat at the feed and supply here down the road. And I had to endure about 10 different jokes about how many buckwheat pancakes I must be making. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm not making buckwheat pancakes. I'm I'm planting food plots with buckwheat because I have some, some soil that I want to build up. It's going to be nice and green. I want to provide some cover for turkeys. I want to provide some food for deer and other things. And so I felt like at the end of the day that for my summer food plots, buckwheat was going to be the way to go. What do you think about it? I think you made a good choice. Uh, Buckwheat has always been one of my top go-to picks. I joke about it Uh, other than, you know, rye grass, which, you know, you should probably, in my opinion, should never plant, but um, buckwheat would grow on a cinder block if you gave it water, I think. So it's easy to grow, but as you mentioned, three, three really good reasons of what it can add to your food plot, whether it be cover food or uh, soil health, it, those are three really big things. And if you can get that done in one planting, by all means, it's a good one. Yeah. You can get buckwheat for like a buck a pound. <laughs> if you look at the cost of fertilizer and all these other things, um, it's way more than a buck a pound. And so, uh, this is a chance to, uh, build, build up some organic matter in your soil. If you need it, mine certainly need it. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to let this grow through the summer. And then I will, I will only uh, kill down the areas where I plan to do some fall food plots for hunting. I probably won't do, I won't do all of my area, but a lot of it. And so I'm looking forward to, uh, letting the frost get through. And then going out and putting that in the ground. Uh, incidentally, I did a little video that I, well, I was, I was going out to blow off some steam uh, after the tough day on Tuesday. And I thought a good way to do that would be to pick rocks out of one of my food plots. And I did a little video about rock picking, which is probably the first one in the history of National Deer Association uh, videos. But anyway, it's on my Instagram. I picked a lot of rocks. So I got a lot of soil work that I need to do. So I also got 30 trees to plant. I got... In addition to the apple trees I bought, I picked up another 25 from one of our branches that was doing a, a tree sale. So I got, I guess I have 28 crab apple trees and two other apple trees to plant. So I got my hands full. What's going on in your neck of the woods, Mike? Well, not a whole heck of a lot. Right now, I'm actually pruning my mature trees up in New York. I did some last weekend and then the, the snow that I posted on my Instagram page, you know, April in New York, um, chased me out just because it was just too uncomfortable. I don't like to cut and prune, uh, apple trees with gloves on. I like to be able to feel and, uh, the, my cuts are much more precise. And I, w- I had my hands in my pockets, I think more than I had them out. And so I just finally just gave up on that. 
But the good thing is, is um, for New York, they're about two weeks behind us. So I have probably another week at the latest to get up there and finish up some pruning, you know, basically because these trees were planted 10 years ago and I'm trying to shape them and, and actually train them in the shape and position that I want for maximum production down the road. So it's important. It's something that you have to do. It's not glamorous. Uh, tree, you know, watching tree, or I guess I should say supporting tree growth is like watching paint dry. It's, it's very slow. It's very, <laughs> it's very boring, but I, as I do it, I just imagine the day that I'm going to be, you know, sitting there either along a trail that leads up to a few of these clusters of apple trees that I have planted or pears and, um, you know, either have myself or a friend or a grandchild or a child or, you know, whatever, you know, just sitting there and here comes either a doe or a buck or whatever it might be. And uh, all the work makes, you know, to, at least to this point now makes it worthwhile for me and it'll make it even more worthwhile when that happens. So that's the energy and that's the focus that I use moving forward. It's, it's a long, long-term game. You have to think well in advance and um, hopefully the dividends will pay, pay off. Yeah, I think that's yeah, great point. It's definitely ongoing. Like some of the, some of the stuff isn't glamorous. Picking rocks certainly isn't glamorous. Uh, you don't always see the fruits of your labor immediately on some of these things, but if you can see it over the long haul, that's that's just it. And I I noticed the amount of time I spend fly fishing and whatnot has gone dramatically down <laughs> uh, now that I'm dealing with property. But that's okay. I mean, I think it's just getting out and doing some things, and you can't do it all. But uh, you know, you have to be doing something. And even if you're if you don't lay, own land. Uh, I'll just throw this out there. And it's what I closed my video with uh, yesterday is be doing something because fall will get here before you know it. You still have a little bit of time before things get really green to do some scouting and do other preparations where you hunt. And so, uh, you know, don't, don't be caught doing those things, trying to do them at the end of uh, August and September when it's a thousand degrees. Now's a really good time to go out and do that. So I'll just throw that out there. Also, I mean, while you're out there, if you're out there on public land, shed hunting or scouting or for turkeys or deer or otherwise, pick up trash. I mean, I always carried a trash bag with me in mm -hmm. my pack and you can pick up trash. I mean, technically you own that land, but, you know, via your tax, a certain small percentage of it. Take care of your, your place, literally, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, Mike, we need to get out and do some listening for turkeys here. I know they're gobbling. I've seen them out in the fields and I know I think I'll probably see you later today to do some stuff for our local branch, but uh, let's get that on the schedule. And then we can maybe talk about that next time. For sure. All right, folks, I want to thank you for listening. And I want to thank you also uh, really from the heart for your support of the National Deer Association. Uh, I'm very proud to work here. I'm, I'm proud of the people I work with. Uh, we, we have a, I, I really believe that we're do, doing wonderful things for deer hunting and conservation. I'm very proud of our team, our volunteers. When I say our team, it's not just the staff. It's also the volunteers. It's the members. It's the people that care about deer. Uh, we had a branch meeting the other night. We have a local branch here and I was proud that it was a room full of people that care about deer and want to do great things. And so if you're one of those people, please pat yourself on the back. And if you're not one of those people yet, and you're just kind of casual listener, uh, become part of the NDA family, and I think you'll find it very rewarding. Uh, if you're not already a member, like I said, consider joining. We'd appreciate that. Thanks again, folks. National Deer Association, where we are united for deer. Deer.